I try to be uh, I try to be ecclesial and Bonaventure is uh, Bonaventure was today's saint. So I'll throw in the saint of the day. I'll always throw in Saint Jude. Uh, Bonaventure is interesting. You know, his real name was John. Bonaventure's real name was John, but um, he was a Franciscan. And early in his life, Bonaventure, he was about a five-year-old child, Bonaventure was uh, deathly, deathly ill, and Francis of Assisi happened to be passing through his town. And his mother happened to catch Francis of Assisi as he was passing through town and said, please pray for my poor, poor child. And Francis came over and prayed for the child. The child got well on the spot. And when Francis of Assisi saw the child got well, he said, Oh, buona ventura. Oh, good fortune. Maybe a modern translation would be, thanks be to God. And he, and he kept the name Bonaventure ever since, and then he ended up becoming a Franciscan. So anyway, that's why I threw in Bonaventure. And you got a free story just for the heck of it. Okay? So good. So we're continuing with our review of Francis de Sales. And remember that we're talking about the three evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, obedience. We're talking about major virtues. okay? And then we're talking about some specific things, uh, some specific life advice, the kind of thing you would really get in spiritual direction. And Francis intended a lot of his writings were in, began as spiritual direction. And when you hear these things today, you, you find that they're pretty darn good advice it's pretty timeless, okay? So what we're going to do today, we're going to continue with humility. It's a subject that we started last time, all right? And then we're going to move on to the second of the three evangelical councils, talk about chastity, okay? And then a number of subjects that get collectively, I'm going to collectively speak of as conversation, okay? The number of subjects under the umbrella term conversation. And then... Uh, if we get to it, a little bit more time, a couple of words on, on clothing, all right? Because Francis even talks about how to dress, and he's not specific about styles or anything like that, just general, just general good old-fashioned advice, okay? So we're continuing, with, first of all, with the subject of humility, and let's uh, first maybe fr- frame the issue once again, okay? Um, Humility doesn't mean thinking that you're the worst, thinking that you're dirt, anything like that. It's really just knowing the truth about yourself. And if you want to know the value of humility, perhaps uh, it would help to think, perhaps it would help to think like this. You're made for love, really. That's what you're made for. And the sum total of the love of your heart right now a decent percentage of it is shackled up by chains. You're not but a fraction, I'm not but a fraction of who we're really supposed to be for one another. And the sledgehammer that smashes those chains to bits is humility. That's its value. You could say that pride, perhaps an analogy would be pride would be like shackles, chains, of keeping prisoner greatness that God created and that's in you, okay? And humility is really setting it free. So it hurts tremendously to grow in humility, but when you ask all the saints what's the most important virtue, they'll say, humility, humility. Oh, and did I mention humility? And it's not because humility is good all by itself, but it sure is a means to an end, okay? Um, St. Fulgentius of Ruspe gives us an interesting little 
meditation, he says, what was Christ's life but one continuous humiliation? You see why, right? He's God, for goodness sakes. And then he walked around this earth in this mortal flesh. One continuous humiliation. Um, And when you think about it, if Christ, he says, I am the truth, and if humility is the truth, then you could say that God is humility, ultimately. God is humility. So we want to grow in this too. It's a God-like thing to be. Okay, now, we talk about humility. Francis divides it into two main parts. He talks first about what, he talks first about what we talked about last week, and that is practical wisdom. Okay? And he says, uh, ultimately, just a little bit of review, um, he says people become proud because of things that aren't really theirs. A couple of quotes you guys liked last week. People take pride because of what they own. Okay, remember, there are those who are proud and haughty because they ride a magnificent horse, or because they, their hat sports a fancy feather, or because they're wearing some smart and fashionable clothes. Who does not see the folly here? If there is any glory due, it's due to the horse, or the bird, or the tailor. What a pitiable heart it is who expects attention because of a horse, or a feather, or some lace. All right? People take pride in uh, their appearance or their talents or their learning. Like we said last week, certain men make a great to-do about their beautiful mustache or their carefully groomed beard or their curled hair or their fine hands. Others for knowing how to dance or to play cards or how to sing. Or else they strut about altogether taken by their beauty, which they suppose is a source of wonder to all. Is it not pitiable that someone seeks to establish a reputation on such trifles and frivolities? Okay? And he goes on to say, just by way of review, uh, these things are good, but we spoil them. All right? There's nothing wrong with these beautiful things. We spoil them, but we focus on the gift and we forget the giver. Okay? Now, that's the first stage in which he talks about humility, practical wisdom. But he says, that's really just the virtue of... That, that's really just wisdom. Okay? That's not really humility. When the saints talk about humility, it's more than just basic wisdom of, well, really, I shouldn't take pride in something I, I shouldn't take pride in something so silly. And he goes on to talk about what real humility is. Okay, and as I mentioned before, real humility is just the truth of who you are and the truth of who God is. Okay, um, um, and the, who was it? Uh, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the. The reference. Maybe, maybe you can give me the reference if I if, if I give you the quote. He said, um, "If it's if it's true, it ain't boasting." Remember who I'm talking about? Will no, Rogers. Will Rogers. Yeah, thank you. I knew somebody would know it. If it's true, it ain't boasting. Well, it's boasting if you're giving things to yourself that really are from God. Okay. So the truth of who you are, the truth of who God is, and as I mentioned before, it's not you know smart people thinking that they're dumb or pretty girls thinking that they're ugly or anything like that. That's false humility. Okay? Um, but it's thoroughly genuine. There's no affectation whatsoever. And I can tell you it hurts. So when I was in the monastery, uh, there were a lot of deprivations. You had one meal a day. One meal a day. You had no cushions. Everything was hardwood. With no cushions on any chairs, there was a chair that was hardwood. You prayed eight hours a day. Uh, there was no hot water. If you wanted hot water, you had to put a piece of wood that you chopped yourself into an, a, a stove, and you had to heat your own water and mix it with the water. 
um, and then you could have hot water. And people would say, gosh, that must have been so hard. But you know what? The hardest thing about the monastery was actually the continuous presence of God. It might sound strange, but when you're continually meditating, continually meditating on who God is, um, you, you, you begin to realize who God is and who you are, and there's a pain in that truth. Humility hurts, okay? The most difficult thing about it is recognizing this, but Francis twists it, he puts it into a positive light, okay? He says, when you talk about the truth of who God is, be sure to give thanks for the good things that he's done for you. There's nothing at all wrong with that. Recognize good gifts that God has given you. He says, don't be afraid, it's going to puff you up. So you recognize God's given you a good home, he's given you good health, he's given you a good spouse, he's given you good education. As long as you remember where it comes from, you're going to be fine, okay? He says, never fear that the recognition of what he has given will puff us up. If we remain aware of the truth that whatever is good in us is not from us, we'll never be puffed up. Do donkeys cease to be gross and foul-smelling beasts just because they carry the prince's precious belongings? I love his images. What is good in us that has not been received? And if it's been received, how can it puff us up? The more we recognize his benefits the more we shall love him. One of my favorite images for this, for, for the detachment of this kind of humility, is uh, uh, C.S. Lewis gives an image of, a, of an architect who builds the finest cathedral in the world. And he knows it's the finest cathedral in the world. But he has absolutely no pride as a consequence of this. It doesn't matter whether he built the finest cathedral in the world or his rival architect built the finest cathedral in the world because his glory is in what God has done. Not in what he has done. That's humility. Okay, So it's, it's perfectly fine to recognize good things as long as you remember where they come from. But the trouble is, we begin to think that the good things are us. Okay? And not God. And here's where Francis starts to say, here's where Francis starts to say, the second half of humility, it's remembering the truth of who you are. Okay? When talking about the truth of who you are, you have to stop and think about what you are without him. And he says, recall your imperfections. Recall your ingratitudes. Recall your miseries. Um, even the Blessed Mother said, He who is mighty is the one who's done great things for me. And here's where, um, here's where so many misunderstandings about humility hopefully begin to make some sense. Okay? Humble people want to be last. They want to be rebuked. They want to be forgotten. They want to be spoken of badly. They want to be overlooked. They want other people to be promoted and themselves to be left behind. People think that's kind of psychotic or there's something wrong with that or mentally ill with that, but actually that's not true. They don't want that because they like it. Okay? They want that because it's so helpful in helping to remember their faults and keep their wayward pride in check. Right? Francis says, The humble man is all the more courageous when he recognizes his own powerlessness. And he's all the greater when he knows his own weakness. The hardier it makes him. And it makes him place all of his confidence in God. So you can think of it almost like, uh, you know, the way, the way an athlete likes to train. Does he actually like the pain? Does he like the sweat? Not in an end, in it, not, not for itself, but as a means to an end, yes. Okay? So a humble person, there's a, there's a, a you ever heard of the litany of humility? There was a, a cardinal, uh, his name was Francis Mary Del Val, I believe was his name. And he wrote this 
his, his, his uncle was the Pope and he was named a cardinal at some early age and he wrote this prayer called the Litany of Humility and it says things like, you know, that, that others might be preferred to me, Jesus grant me the grace that I might desire it. Uh, that others, uh, that I might be forgotten and others might be placed ahead, Jesus grant me the grace, grace to desire it. Uh, you know, from the fear of being forgotten, Jesus deliver me. All these things. And it, if, it sounds strange to modern ears, but if you recognize what it frees you up for, and if you think of it not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end, hopefully that begins to make sense. And here's where Francis says, we want to love our objection. Okay? We want to love our objection. Um, and he says by objection, he says, it's the littleness, lowliness, and meanness which are in us without our necess- necessarily thinking about them. Okay? And the virtue of humility is the true and frank acknowledgement of that abjection. Okay? It's the truth of your own weakness. It's the truth of your own littleness. And he gives an example uh, um, of, of what's in you versus what's in God. He says two people walk down the street, a monk with his cassock and a businessman with his fine suit. Okay? Each one of them has a, a rip. Uh, the businessman has a rip in his fine suit and the monk has a, a, a great big rip in his cassock. What happens? People see the monk with the tattered cast and go, oh, you're so holy. They see the businessman with a fine suit with a rip. They're like, what's the matter with you? Get a new suit. He says that the honor in the monk's case is really due to God. Okay? But the abjection in the case of the businessman reveals our true condition. So it's, it's, something, that, it's something to, keep, to, to, to be aware of, our powerlessness, our vulnerability. Um, and that helps us to remember who we are and it helps us to remember who God is. Genuine humility just wants to be true. It doesn't want to pretend anything. And it's so interesting. You've heard it said that uh, hypocrisy is the tribute that virtue pays, that, that, that vice pays to virtue. Right? Hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. And it says very often we say that we are nothing, right? Fake humility. We say that we are misery itself and we are the refuse of the world, but we would be sorely annoyed if anyone were to take us at our word. Right? and insist that we are what we say we are. There was a, a story I heard. Uh, uh, there was a painter and his friend, and the, the painter, the friend said to the painter, uh, why don't you enter your paintings into uh, this art contest? And the painter said, oh, my paintings are no good. I'll never be anything. My paintings are terrible. They're nothing at all compared to the other ones. And the friend said, I know, but... The man goes, no pretense, okay? We make a pretense of fleeing honors and hiding from them, but it's only so that people will run after us all the more and come looking for us. We feign wanting to be last, seated at the end of the table, but it's only so that someone will insist that we take the place of honor. This is why a truly humble person prefers another to say that he's wretched than to say it of himself, okay? So it's, a, it's an easy thing to fake, uh, but hu- real humility uh, it has no pretense, Real humility wants to hide its talents, wants to hide its abilities, wants to uh, unveil them only at the service of charity. Okay? Why is that? Why is that? It goes back to this idea of our objection. I, I, the best image I can give it is spiritual training. If you could, reckon, if, you could if we could see with the eyes of the saints, we would see the great value of what humility uh, allows us to become. And only then we would see that these this objection, our own trip-ups and failings and weakness, is something that, 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 that sets free all those gifts that, that, that God has actually given 
in us that the pride is holding in pride is holding in check. Okay. Um, uh, he says, uh, I, I would not play the fool or the learned when true humility consists in obeying and in being the closest possible conformity to God's will for us. That's why humility makes no pretense of being humble. Okay? It desires to conceal itself. So, there's an understanding of humility. It's, it's probably the greatest, uh, the most painful thing in which to grow. The most painful thing in which to grow, but the most precious of all things. Uh, Teresa of Avila has a beautiful image for growing in humility. She says, uh, going, going on, the, uh, on, on the idea from the Psalms that he humbles only to exalt us, Teresa of Avila says, anytime you're humbled, okay, no matter what it's for, you can take it as a promise from God that he's about to lift you up. Just like if someone were digging a foundation for a new house, they only go down because they want to go up, and the deeper they go down, the higher they're going to build up. So any humiliation is always a pretense for a new, a, a, a preparation, I'm sorry, a preparation for a new growth that God wants to give you. And that's why Francis says what he says about it. Okay? So hard, yes, but well, well worth it. Okay. So that's the value of humility in Francis. All right. Now, chastity. Chastity. No spiritual subject would be possibly complete without a discussion of chastity. So let's take a look at this. First of all, it's wildly unpopular. You want to know what's really funny? I went through uh, my class, handing out my notes, and Microsoft Word didn't know the meaning of the word unchastity. It, it thought it was an error. <laughs> unchastity, it put it, put it as an error. It was like, you know, it, it thought it was a terrible misspelling, which says something about the world we live in. Wildly unpopular. Uh, if there was ever one commandment most people would want to erase, it would be this one. I remember there was a, I knew a Franciscan one day and they have the, the rope belt and the belt has three knots on it and it represents the three vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And he was joking, yeah, one of them, one of them slip knot. <laughs> and you know what he was talking about, right? It was just a joke, of course. Don't take it too seriously. But the, the idea here, why is it so unpopular? Um, I'm going to take a stab as to why, okay? And here's why. It's because... Uh, Sexual intercourse might be, apart from, apart from the highest mystical experiences, might be the closest approximation on earth of what we were actually created for. Okay? You are body and soul. And sexual union is not just bodily. It's a spiritual union. It's a union of soul and body. Uh, and of course, when we speak about matrimony, we speak about... the husband and the wife as the image of Christ and the church and if you go back and you look at the book of Revelation, you'll find that the entire thing tells us that, we're, that, that, that the culmination of all things will be something like a wedding something like a union between Christ and his church, something like a wedding I don't know what that's going to be like, but it's what we have here on earth is only an image of it Thomas Aquinas, that's why Thomas Aquinas said it's a foretaste of heaven something of what heaven will be Okay? So it's terribly, terribly powerful because it's your whole body and your whole soul. And when anything is very greatly good and very greatly powerful, there's a tremendous, pow- tremendous temptation to compromise it and to destroy it. And that's what lust is. Okay? And that's, that's exactly the problem. A lot of people think that the, the church has a hang-up on sex. But that's really not true. The only reason 
why the church says what it says about sexual morality is first because we so highly esteem the act of sexual intercourse in the first place. If you didn't first hold that up to be holy and sacramental, you would not with such ferocity condemn anything which blasphemes it. Okay? So a lot of people, they, they don't understand why we say what we say. We say what we say because it's something that's sacred that's being dragged through the mud. And that's a terrible, terrible loss. Right? Um, but ultimately, uh, when we talk about chastity, we are not talking about a negative virtue. People always think chastity means don't, don't, don't. And it really doesn't mean that. What it really is is a protection of something greatly, greatly good. Um, people get chastity and abstinence confused. Right? Abstinence does mean don't, don't, don't. But chastity is a virtue of integrity. That's ultimately what it is. Right? It's a virtue of integrity. Integrity of body and soul. A mastery of the body by the soul. And that's why it's a virtue of freedom. And the fruits of chastity are deep inner joy. And it's no mistake about it that some of the coarsest and rudest people that you'll ever meet are some of the most unchaste. And make no mistake about it that the, some of the most beautiful people you meet, you know, occasionally you'll meet these greatly beautiful souls, uh, they're, they're also, they, all, they also have a tremendous mastery of this virtue. Okay? Uh, because of original sin, the body wages war on the soul. And you see this all the time. Right? We want to eat more than we ought to, and we eat the wrong things. And we want to rest more than we ought to, and, and you know the consequences of that. A lot of people don't understand the consequences of misuse of chastity, the misuse of sexuality, and the terrible disorder that's a consequence of it. And it, the, one of the greatest effects is a terribly deep sadness. Something is deeply disordered, deep, deep down inside. And so why is the, the, the virtue of chastity so valuable? Because it protects what love is meant to be. Okay? Um, it protects love. Why is it called purity? I often wondered, why is unchastity called impurity? And why is chastity called purity? Ultimately, because our love is meant to be other-oriented. All right? and, and here's the thing that most people don't, often people don't get. Unchastity is selfishness. Unchastity is always selfishness. Okay? It doesn't mean that sexual activity is always selfishness, but if it's marked by selfishness, it's unchastity. Unchastity is always selfishness, and that's why it's impure. Our love is meant to be pure, that is totally other-oriented. Unchastity is self-oriented. Okay? Chastity is sexuality entirely focused on the other person. In unchastity, one person takes advantage of another. And I'll tell you, in spite of uh, what might occur in the moment, it always, it always reaps the ugly fruit of deep and lasting resentment. Okay? Um, and that's why it's a self-mastery, this virtue of chastity. It's a self-mastery that has to precede real love. It's why Thomas Aquinas said that it's an essential component for the understanding of divine things. Okay. Um, there's so much that I could... So much I could say about this. I hope I'm not making too much of a hodgepodge of this. But, uh, um, uh, well, well, just here's Francis, okay? Among the virtues, chastity is the lily. It renders men and women almost angelic. It is called integrity, as I tried to mention already, while its opposite is called corruption. Its glory lies in the beautiful purity, which I tried to explain, the purity of body and soul. Okay. 
So with a little bit of understanding of chastity, he gives some advice for widows, for virgins, and for the married. Okay, First, for widows. He says their, their biggest temptation is going to be their memory. And they have to have a courageous chastity that forbids present and future impurity and also resists the wanderings of the imagination that the memory can give birth to. Okay, so it's basically with regard to widows, says, watch out, uh, memories can bear some unwelcome fruit and, and do you no good. Okay, so be on the lookout there. Now, virgins, here's the thing. He says that what, you, what they need to learn how to do is treasure chastity as being a good thing. Treasure it as being a very good thing and to despise unchastity. Okay, a lot of times young people will come to me and they'll ask me, in one way or another, they'll basically say, Father, how far can I go? Where's the line? Okay? And Francis would say, basically, he'd say, you're asking the wrong question. You know why you're asking the wrong question? Because your question presupposes that you want as much unchastity as you can possibly get before you cross some line. But that makes it seem that unchastity is the good thing and chastity is the bad thing when you want to actually have those backwards. Chastity is something that should be valued. It should be esteemed. Okay? Um, and uh, and, and uh, kind of lost my, lost my place here. He says, hate anything that gets in the way of it. Hate anything that threatens it. The devil, he says, violently tempts virgins with ideas presenting unchastity as infinitely more delightful than it really is. A very, little, a very important little tidbit there to keep in mind. And then he goes on to talk about the married. Okay? And he says, must understand, however difficult it might be to do so, that chastity is intended for them as well. And I hope what I've said so far makes that, make, makes that somewhat clear. It doesn't consist in abstaining from bodily pleasure, but in restraining themselves in the midst of it. It's actually easier, Francis says, to abstain from carnal pleasures altogether than to be moderate in them. And as a priest, I can tell you, uh, a lot of people tell me stuff, right? Married people, they come and they tell me stuff. We sit down in my office and they, sometimes I have to tell them to tone it down, okay? I have to say, look, I don't, no, don't tell me all those details. Please, for once, be general, okay? Um, <coughs> and, and I find often the problem is that people have gotten this impression that just because they're married, anything goes, um, and what we have there is a problem, once again, with selfishness. And, uh, um, again, we have to remember that, hey, especially true in the matrimonial covenant, a relationship always is oriented towards the other. And where there's selfishness, the relationship starts to break down. Uh, can I ask you to hold off questions till the end? Okay. Actually, comment, I believe the Yes, I mean, I hope that doesn't contradict anything I said. What, no, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. To me, it further develops what you're saying. Yes. Even in the marriage, it still has to be the right relationship. Yes. Yes. Um, hold on just a second. Sometimes it makes me lose my, my train of thought, that's all. Um, well, anyway. Um, the safeguards you have to have in marriage. Well, that, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But there, this, uh, what I, what I want to try to, what I, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that, uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that, uh, is, is, is the, to, to try to counteract the idea that, that matrimony makes anything that you might want to do okay. And uh, 
The Greeks had, among their words for love, eros, philia, and agape. And eros was a completely self-oriented thing. And it's the root of our word for erotic. But it doesn't always have to mean that. It could mean a drink of cold water on a hot day. This is great. It could mean a cool breeze on a hot day or a warm blanket on a cold day. But ultimately, it's not about anything other than yourself. Feeling is friendship. It's give and take. Uh, the trouble with philia is ultimately, if it doesn't go beyond that, it breaks down. Agape was the love that was completely focused on the other. And any relationship breaks down when selfishness takes part. And, and unchastity, ultimately, in the end of the day, it is, it is selfishness. All right? So it's easy to misuse. It's easy to destroy. Remember, Jesus is very merciful on the subject. He's gentle as a lamb. Um, but where unchastity is accepted, it leads to a whole lot of other problems. A whole lot of other problems. I have uh, found this to be one of the greatest sources of resentment within marriages. Um, and so it's just a very important thing. Remember, the virtue of it, uh, um, as you said, uh, sexual, sexual, sexuality in the right relationship, the virtue of it is for everybody. All right? So just to, that's just something, this is a very, very important thing. All right, now, moving on, absolutely unrelated, conversation, right? St. James tells us that the perfection of your tongue is the height of perfection. It's the easiest thing in the world is to speak words that you later regret. Right? Gospel of Matthew says, by your words you shall be justified, by your words you shall be condemned. And Francis, when he talks about conversation, he says, whatever your conversation is, um, it flows from your heart's abundance. Words flow out of your soul. Your words are a mirror of your soul. By your words, you'll know the truth of who you are inside. Okay? And he talks about this subject in different subjects, different subjects of conversation. Um, and he talks about speaking about God. Right? So we readily speak about what we love. And if you love God, you'll speak about Him with family, with friends, with neighbors. Okay? But frequently, if you're not careful, especially among churchy friends and that kind of thing, uh, you speak about God with conceit. You can speak about God in a way to make people think better of you. That, that only works among certain friends. I mean, in our secularized society, among secular conversations, people might think you're crazy if you talk about God. But among uh, those who are trying to, trying to be disciples, uh, people can sometimes use the subject of God as a sense to prop themselves up. And Francis says, be careful. Never be conceited. Never be preachy. Never do this just out of habit. Never do this just to win esteem. Let it be from your heart's abundance. Always with attention about who you're talking about. Always with love about who you're speaking of. Reverence, gentleness, and humility. Okay? So, be sincere. Be humble. Avoid conceit. Be careful when talking about God. Okay? So, it's an easy, once again, a good thing, easy to misuse. Two subjects that are never acceptable. All right? Impurity. It's never okay to talk a double-meaning joke. Right? Um, if someone does say such a thing to you, he says, Francis says, let him know you don't appreciate it, either by walking away or by some tactic that prudence will suggest to you. I personally suggest this, the latter of the two, some tactic that prudence will suggest to you. Sometimes walking away can seem too haughty or high and mighty. Okay? Um, another one that he says is never okay is mockery. Mockery. He says it's rooted in contempt, and that's the problem. 
He says, let, us have, let this have no place in your conversation. God detests this vice, which is so contrary to charity. We might even say that the greatest offense to neighbor, which, is, which in speech is to mock him, because one cannot mock without somewhat despising what one is mocked. And be careful. A lot of times, sarcasm is mockery. That's all it is. Okay. And you stop and sometimes have to ask yourself, uh, is that how you could imagine, say, the Pope speaking? Is that how you could imagine someone like Mother Teresa speaking? Certainly can't imagine our Lord speaking that way. And we want to try to bring our conversation into that line. So never acceptable. Impurity and mockery. He says there's one exception. One exception to what people might call mockery. Um, and he says that's when it's playful and joyful. The Greeks have a word, eutrapelia, which literally means a good twist. And Francis says it permits us to obtain, entertain ourselves with the friendly and pleasant enjoyment we take in amusing little situations which human imperfections provide us from time to time. Right? Teasing, accompanied by a few gentle words, causes simple, friendly, open laughter, provided we don't go beyond the bounds of pleasantry into cruel mockery. Okay? So, you know, joshing, ribbing, kidding. Perhaps a good rule of thumb to differentiate between the two is, would you say it in their presence, or would you only say it behind their back? Okay? Um, I'm doing my best to speak louder than the rain. <laughs> you, I will win. <laughs> Okay. Um, on judgment. On judgment. Okay. The trouble is, we are all judgmental people. Right? So we're all judgmental people. But it's important to remember what judgment is not. It's interesting, even Francis talks about this. What judgment is not. Judgment is not saying something's wrong. Alright? You can judge actions, but you don't judge persons. Otherwise, you know... A parent wouldn't be able to child, tell a child not to cross a busy city street. Oh, there goes my kid again. But, oh, but who am I to judge, right? Now, they just do this, do these things, you know, but who am I to judge? No, there are actions that are wrong, and we have to call them out as such. What we don't judge when speaking of judgment is we don't judge motives. And that's exactly what Francis is talking about. We don't judge why people do what they do. What they do and why they do it are two very, very different things. He says, all these judgments of motives, oh, I know why he said that, or I know why she said that, and it happens even in suspicions. It happens all the time. People suspect that they know why someone did or said what they did or said, and Francis, you know, that's why he puts it under the umbrella term of conversation. You've got to be careful with what you say, and you don't know why anyone did what they did. You just you only know what they did, but not why. Don't jump to conclusions. Okay? He says, the essence of a sin, that is something that you would otherwise judge, is a decision of the heart, and it always remains a secret. One has enough to do in judging himself without undertaking the judgment of his neighbor. But we do just the opposite. We never stop doing what is forbidden, judging our neighbor at every turn. And for what is commanded that we judge ourselves, we never do this. Okay. Um, and he says that, that everyone, short of perfection, does this. We're all guilty of this. It's something we have to be aware of. We're continually doing it. In fact, Francis even divides it up into different kinds of people. All right? So maybe this, will, maybe this will be you. Maybe this will be someone you know. Okay? But he says different kinds of persons and different takes on how 
they're judgmental. First of all, he says bitter persons. Right? What's a bitter person, according to Francis? He says a person who's always strict, always severe, always judging everyone. And he says for such a temperament, it's actually less of a sin than it is an imperfection. It's like they almost can't help it. Okay? Um, he says such a person badly needs a spiritual director. Okay, it's very, very, very difficult for them to overcome. A bitter person often doesn't even know that they're bitter. Okay? And then he says, proud persons. Proud persons. These are the people that think they'll build themselves up by tearing somebody else down. Arrogant, presumptuous Pharisees. They esteem themselves so highly that they think all others inferior. Right? So watch out, stay far away from them on Judgment Day. Smug, self-content persons. Okay? He says they imperceptibly enjoy discovering evil in others to show how they themselves are the contrary. Right? Sound familiar? By drawing attention to others' faults, they try to draw attention to their own virtues. Frequently, they're not even aware of this. You know? As if to say, uh, you know, such and such person's always late. <laughs> not like me. Right? I'm always on time. They're putting the other down so as to put themselves up. Philosophizing persons. This is kind of an interesting one. He says these people play a mental game. They categorize and they label, right? They say, oh, I know your type. You're just like my mother-in-law, right? He says it leads to pride. It's very, very, very difficult to correct. It's very, very, very difficult to penetrate such such a person who thinks they categorize others all the time. Uh, It has the trouble of judgment, okay? And then lastly, jealous persons. They judge according to their passions, whether good or evil. What they love, they call good. What they hate, they call evil. Okay? So, uh, um, it's very often we, we credit ourselves mostly for things that are really our own, our own faults. Very often we, 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 te- we, tend to, um, we, we tend to credit ourselves with things that are really faults. And can you all still hear me? Okay, good. Because by the time I'm done, I'm not going to have a voice left, but I'll spend it all, okay? Um, um, so good. So he says the remedy of this is charity, right? The remedy for all this is charity. He says charity doesn't look for evil. When it discovers it, it tries to ignore it. When someone has a, a fault, that is. It forgets it as quickly as possible and it hopes that it is only the appearance of evil. And he gives some really interesting examples of this. Um, in, uh, in the scriptures, Abimelech saw Isaac and Rebekah embracing tenderly. And his first thought was, they must be married. Okay? That's charity covering up judgment. St. Joseph refused to judge Mary when he learned that she was with child and left the matter to God. Charity covering up judgment. Or Christ, who refused even to condemn those who crucified him and chalked the motive up to ignorance. Right? He says every, Francis says, everything appears yellow to the jaundiced. And sin is spiritual jaundice. Makes everything appear evil to the eyes of those who are tainted by it. But if their heart is kind, their judgments will be kind. If their heart is charitable, their judgments will be charitable. Okay? So once again, judgment of, 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 of motives, not awareness of facts. There's a big difference between the two. And judgment presupposes the clarification of some obscurity. Right? Clarification of some obscurity. And then he says slander. Worse than judgment. He says, slander is a kind of murder. In effect, we have three kinds of life. Spiritual life, which consists in the grace of God. 
corporal life, which consists in the grace of the soul, and civil life, which depends on one's reputation. Sin kills the first, death kills the second, slander kills the third. Okay? And sometimes people try to couch slander in the context of praise. Right? He's really a great guy, but, except for this one fault, he says, don't be fooled. Okay? Don't be fooled. It's not the ruse obvious. The archer draws his bow towards himself as much as possible, but that's only to launch the arrow with even more force. Um, And then he says something interesting here that you might want to stop and and ponder. He says, there can be slander against entire nations. We have to watch out for that. And slander against politicians. And we have to watch out for that. He says, most everyone permits themselves to judge and criticize rulers and to speak ill of entire nations according to his likes and dislikes. Don't fall into this failing. It offends God and causes all kinds of quarrels. Okay. I think we can still finish this. We can still finish this. I'm pushing along. There's just so much to, so much to say here. Okay, lies. When speaking of lies, it's important to remember what a lie is and what a lie is not. A lie is two things. It's speaking an untruth, but with an intention to deceive. It's both of those things at once. So I can speak an untruth to you with no intention to deceive, right? Uh, three men walked into a bar, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister. The rabbi said to the priest, well, but did three people really walk into a bar? No, I'm telling you something that's untrue, but am I lying? There's no intention to deceive there. Okay? There's no intention to deceive. However, there's times when you can speak the truth with an intention to deceive. And this is where Francis really says, be careful. So, for example, you could say, uh, well, here, here, here's an example. Um, I, when I was chaplain of a high school, you'd find some students who would tell their parents that they went to church. Okay? What actually happened, in fact, is that they studied moral theology, they learned the two components of a lie, and they stepped foot in the church, and then walked out and went to 7-Eleven. Because they told them the truth. I did go to church, right? but the presumption there is that the presumption there is that if you went to church, you actually attended the Mass, not you stopped in the church for three seconds. However, there, there are times in which you have to do it. Okay? There are times when it's, when it's a matter of great importance, when God's glory or justice or something else clearly requires it. But he says, for the most part, avoid it. Be simple, mild, candid, and sincere. Okay? And he says, sometimes a lot of people find themselves in habits of lying. They speak untruths, and they find themselves speaking untruths without even thinking about it. It's just become a habit. And he says, when you tell a lie, and you know you've told a lie, you correct it right on the spot. There's a small window of opportunity that exists for correcting yourself, and he says, that will break the habit of untruthfulness. Okay, and then last of all, clothing. Just very, very briefly. Okay, very, very briefly. Most of what Francis says about clothing, he's addressing to the ladies. Right? Most of it's addressing to ladies. And here's what he says. You might find this amusing. He says, first of all, be clean always. Right? Guard against negligence. And he's not talking about accidents like stains. He's talking about your general, general, general appearance. But he says, be careful. No affectation ever. No vanity ever. Strive for modesty. Strive for simplicity. Recognize that your dress, of course, varies according to situation, home, funeral, wedding, whatever it might be. He says, for married women, 
dress well to please your husband. Guys like this, okay? It says, dress well to please your husband. But if you're dressing well and it's not to please your husband, you do have to stop and ask yourself who you're trying to please, okay? You've got to be careful, right? You've got to stop and ask. doesn't mean you can't do it, but you've got to answer that question, who am I trying to please? Single ladies. Okay, single ladies. It says, there's nothing the matter with looking good to try to win a guy, right? With the intention of holy matrimony. Bait the hook a little bit? Francis says yes, right? <laughs> right. Now, widows. Widows. He says, widows have to ask themselves this question. Do they intend to remarry? Right? And then they have to act in accordance with it. If they intend to remarry, they dress like they, they can take the advice that he said to single women. But if they're not intending to remarry, he says, if you don't want to get guests at your lodging, take out the welcome sign. <laughs> says, you know, just remember, question why you're doing it, okay? And then for the elderly... He says, graciously surrender the things of youth when the time comes. I remember um, my spiritual director told me a story about a woman who went into a beauty parlor, parlor, and let's just say the flower of youth had long since passed, and the, 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 the beautician did the very best she could, and she was furious with the result, and she was steaming and foaming at the mouth uh, to, to the beautician, and the beautician finally, just in, in frustration, picked up... <laughs> picked up the comb and said, Madam, this is a comb, not a magic wand. Okay? <laughs> Graciously surrender the things of you. Alright. To men, he says, avoid being excessively concerned about your appearance. Alright? He says, it's, he says, it's effeminate and it's ridiculous. Okay? <laughs> and I think he's spot on. <laughs> um, and he says, women, he says, watch out. You might think you're being fashionable. You might think you're intending no harm, but that doesn't mean that that's the way it's always taken. Right? A woman might intend no harm in such behavior. Sometimes the devil can twist things to create harm in such behavior. So, um, this is very unusual because I've never had to scream before to, to counteract the rain, which is all the more reason to, to raise some money and build a new church, right? Where it'll be nice and quiet in a, in a beautiful basement. But how about this? Um, We'll end with a little prayer, okay? And then if you have any questions, you can, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can ask to your heart's content. And I'll speak as long as I can, all right?